Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Changing Faith Podcast. Thank you for joining us once again in the midst of a season that seems to, um, well, it seems to have no end, doesn't it? In March, we were told, wait until April, and then we'll see how things work out. In April, we were told, wait until May, and then we'll know more. Now we're in May, and in some sectors, being told to wait till June. And in June, who knows? Who knows what all of this holds for us? And at one level, this is just, um, I don't know if tiring is the right word. It just feels so monotonous. And I don't know about you, um, but one of the things I'm hearing and feeling and observing in so many people is a desire for this just to be over. And I, I feel that too, uh, in, in so many days. But on other days, I often hear the words of Father Richard Rohr ringing in my ears. He said something like, don't let go of your pain until it has taught you all that it has to teach you. And in this time, we don't seem to have much say as to when this season will end, which means we are invited to reflect, to listen, to look at ourselves, to observe our world. As I said a couple of episodes ago, this is an apocalyptic moment, meaning it's revealing. And it's revealing what is within us individually and what is within us collectively. And one of those things that seems to be rising to the surface, that seems to be revealed, is something that has really always been there, and it's what I want to reflect on today. And what I'm talking about is the human tendency to not look within at ourselves, the human ability to have a keen eye toward what is wrong out there while fully ignoring what needs healing within ourselves. In this attitude, this uh, way of living and seeing, it, it can lead to, and it often does lead to, a sense of superiority, which lures us into believing our way is the singular right way. And the more we believe that, the more we believe the problem is not within us, which leads to greater superiority. It's this circular thing. It, like, like the cycle continues to go on and on. So with that in mind, I want to talk about what happens in situations where we can't really identify the cause? And then uh, we'll talk about what happens when naked people get dressed, <laughs> and then helpful ways of seeing ourselves, and finally, uh, helpful ways of seeing others. So first, what happens when it seems like there is no cause? Now, our global population, as you all know, we're currently suffering from the COVID-19 pandemic. And already you're like, wow, this, this guy offers some amazing and valuable insights. He just told me about a pandemic. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it just gets better from here. Um, there's a pandemic at hand, and it has radically altered the way we live day to day. And the impact, by the way, on some has been far worse than the impact on others. Here in the United States, we have people who've lost loved ones. Uh, millions of people have lost job and filed for unemployment. Um, parents have become school teachers suddenly overnight. Um, high school and college sports have been canceled. Graduation exercises for the class of 2020 have vaporized. Life as we know it has changed. One friend of mine has uh, two of his adult children had to move back into his house after they lost their jobs and couldn't afford rent. So he said, well, just come live with, with us. And then right as they moved in, he lost his job. And now... As a family of four adults, him, his wife, and his kids, they're trying to figure out how to make ends meet. So to put it simply, something is wrong. Like things are not as we believe they should be. And in what seems to be a part of the human condition, when there's something wrong, we often attempt to understand why. What's causing this? Now, this is not right or wrong or good or bad. It just seems to be like the way it is, the way things are. And, and by the way, even when things are not what we would consider wrong, like when we see something happen, we want to know the cause. We, we, we as humans, we're curious creatures. And our curiosity, by the way, in exploring when something happens and trying to find the cause of it, it, it has led to incredible advances in our world. It's led to discoveries. It's led to inventions. This curiosity is nothing new. Humans have had this since the dawn of consciousness. And as curious as we are, 
our curiosity peaks even more when something happens that we would say, well, that's wrong, or something happens that causes us to be uncomfortable, or when something happens that causes us pain, we suddenly seem to become intensely interested in learning why this is happening, in learning what the cause is, and we become interested in what the cause is so we can fix whatever it is that's wrong so that we can once again be comfortable. And the more uncomfortable we are, the more interested we are in sorting out whatever is wrong. Years ago, uh, I still lived in Michigan. It was the middle of winter. Now, if you're familiar with Michigan winters, they are nothing to be trifled with. <laughs> a few years ago, a friend of mine came here to Denver Community Church from Michigan. He came here to preach on a weekend, and it was sunny in Denver, which it often is, and he told me, I can't even get over how good the sun is. And he shared that Michigan, where he lived in Michigan, which is Grand Rapids, was for the month of January, whatever year it was, the cloudiest place on earth. Like, <laughs> how depressing is that? This is not like, oh, it was really cloudy. Like, this is the cloudiest place on earth earth. This is the kind of winters you get in Michigan. The year that my wife and I moved, so this is 2007, there was, I think, 20 plus days straight where the temperature did not get above nine degrees. That's not wind chill. That's just the temperature, nine degrees. And it is, it's bone chilling cold with no sun in the winter. And so there I am in Michigan in my bed one winter morning and my alarm goes off and I put my arm out from under my covers to turn the alarm off and I feel the cold in the air and it's much colder than it's supposed to be. And I realized my room was freezing. So immediately I jump out of bed and I run downstairs to where the thermostat is and I start like pushing buttons and nothing is happening the temperature on the thermostat indicated it was 38 degrees. I ran downstairs to our furnace and realized it was dead. And it was 11 degrees outside. So 38 inside, 11 degrees inside. Something is absolutely positively wrong. And I am incredibly interested in sorting out whatever it is so that we can get things fixed. So the furnace goes out, needs to be replaced. It was urgent because not only were we uncomfortable, but we also had a three and a one-year-old at the time. So we get them um, dressed and my wife takes them over to some friend's house. And I call the furnace guy and he says, yeah, it's supposed to be really cold today. If your house is already that cold, you need to start turning on all the faucets in your house so that the water will run through the pipes and won't freeze as quickly. So at this point I'm thinking, okay, Something is wrong. We have the cause. Now we need to fix it as soon as possible. Thankfully, he, he got there um, and he fixed it rather quickly uh, in about a half a day. So all of a sudden now our discomfort um, that we experienced, it, it, it was solved because the greater the discomfort, the greater our interest in getting things repaired or fixed or back to normal. And once those things are repaired or fixed or back to normal, we stop thinking about it. Like I didn't, for the next six to 12 months, go downstairs every single day and make sure my furnace was okay. It was fine. It was fixed. That's behind us now. And th this is often the way we think. And so um, by comparison, in that same house where the furnace went out, in, in the back of our house, kind of toward the corner, we had a water spigot for that you would hook up a hose to. And from the time that we bought the house until we moved, the little handle on that water spigot was really wonky and it would just spin freely and you couldn't turn the, the water spigot on. I didn't care. So my solution was, instead of hooking up a hose to that one, I would hook up a hose to the spigot on the side of the house. And if I needed to go to the back of the house with the hose, I would just walk the hose from the side of the house to the back. B because it, it didn't really impact or make me uncomfortable, this something that was wrong. I knew what the cause was and I was always like, eh, I'll fix it later. And I never did. I moved. <laughs> from that house to Colorado without ever fixing it. So something's wrong. What's the cause? The greater discomfort, the greater interest in fixing it. So consider our current moment. You uh, cannot go out in some states. That's still the case. Uh, you're 
people are telling you not to go out, stay at home, uh, no bars, no restaurants, wear masks, work from home, on and on it goes. And then on top of that, there's this kind of lingering threat of um, contracting COVID-19 and then passing it on. So something is wrong. But here's the thing. We don't really know the cause, meaning there's not an easy fix to this. Like, sure, we know it's a virus. We know it's a new virus. We have a name for it. But we really don't know how exactly to make sure 100% we're going to fix this thing. We don't exactly know precisely where it came from, even though there's all sorts of um, conspiracy theories and ideas out there. And so if there's not an easy fix to this, there's like nobody that we can call. And there's nothing we can do to make it better as quickly as possible. We just have to be with this discomfort. It just is the way it is for right now and for the last few months and maybe for the next few months or maybe for the next few years. And in this particular instance, we're incredibly uncomfortable. And since the more discomfort we experience, the greater our interest in getting things repaired or fixed or back to normal, well, maybe this is some of what we're struggling to name. Like, I don't know anybody in this season who has been like, oh, this has been the best. I love being at home. I love uh, working from home. I love not being able to go out. I love that I can't go to restaurants. Like, I don't know anyone who's excited about this season. Everyone that I speak with seems to be at differing levels of some kind of discomfort, and we cannot fix it. We are forced to wait and see. We, we, we check the news for... Uh, whether or not there's going to be a vaccine. And people have been saying now for three months, it's going to be 18 months, which you're like, so does that that mean it was like 21 months, three months ago, or is it 18 months? Or is it two years was another one I saw. I saw another article that said the fastest viral vaccine ever created took four years. Maybe we're going to have to social distance for four years. (laughs) I mean, what are we to do? Something has happened that has caused us to be uncomfortable. Yes, we know the cause, coronavirus, but we don't really know all the ins and outs of it. We can't seem to figure out how to repair this in a way that will relieve our discomfort. We are stuck. And what happens when we get stuck in our discomfort? Well, we grow a bit more agitated. We become more impatient. We get more anxious. And this is where so many of us are in this moment. But something within our psyche still wants to figure it out, to fix it, to find the cause. Because if we can, then this will be over. And it is when we find ourselves in this place of feeling stuck, of feeling impatient, of feeling agitated, of feeling anxious. It's when we're in this place that all of a sudden, we find ourselves beginning to lay blame in all sorts of places and on all sorts of people. Because if we can do that, maybe we'll find just a little bit more comfort, right? I mean, isn't that how this works? And I would say, well, yeah, sort of. And and here's why I say that. We only need to look at a story of naked people who are getting dressed. (laughs) This is Uh, the mythic story in Genesis chapter 3, which is a story about humanity that is always true, even today, uh, and is therefore it's really the story of all of us. It's the story of the human condition. Now, if you don't know the story, there's a tree in the middle of the garden called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the middle of the garden of Eden. And God instructs the humans in the garden, don't eat of the fruit of that tree. And at the beginning of Genesis chapter 3, it says the man and the woman are in the garden and a serpent comes to the woman and starts asking her questions about the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And as they have this conversation, he finally swindles her, entices her, whatever it is, to eat this fruit. And then she gives some to her husband who is with her. And when they eat of this fruit, it says their eyes are opened and they're naked. 
And all of a sudden, in their nakedness, they feel this like threat of vulnerability, whatever it is, and they start clothing themselves with fig leaves. And as they're clothing themselves with fig leaves, they hear the sound of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they run and they hide in the bushes. So now you have (laughs) naked people covered in leaves hiding in the bushes. This is like some sort of camouflage. And God calls out to the man, says, where are you? And the man says, I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And God says, whoa, 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 wait, who told you you were naked? Did, did you eat of the fruit I commanded you not to eat from? And the man, in a stunning display of honesty and courage, says, well, no, actually, the woman you put here with me, like, this is your fault. The woman you put here with me, she made me do it. She gave some to me, and I ate it. So, like, God, if you hadn't have put her here with me, well, we would still be enjoying a walk around the garden in the cool of the day. So God says to the woman then, what is this you've done? And in a stunning display of honesty and courage, she says, well, the serpent, you, the serpent tricked me and, and I ate it. Um, this is, by the way, the original sin. It's denial. It's passing the buck. It's blaming. It's, not, it's an unwillingness to own one's own actions. Something had happened. Something was wrong. This is apparent. The, the, the man and the woman knew this. They saw themselves naked. They're covering up. Something was wrong. The cause, the cause was their own actions, according to this story. The cause was them eating the fruit. But what we learn from this story is apparently it was so unbelievably painful to acknowledge that. So instead, they point the finger. They shifted the blame. It's not my fault. I did not cause this because somehow not having to live with the truth of ourselves, not having to live with the reality of our actions and attitudes, apparently, if we don't have to own that, if we don't have to live with that, well, that makes things, at least for a time, more comfortable. And this is like how everything seems to be right now, all over the place, is blame, blame, blame. President Trump blames China for not warning people early enough about the dangers of COVID. And the media gets all over President Trump for calling it the China virus. And the Chinese government blames the U.S. military for introducing the disease to China. That's just around China. Then you have the World uh, World Health Organization taking heat for allegedly hiding information or not being forthcoming enough. You have Democratic uh, political leaders blaming President Trump for not acting soon enough to curb the spread of the disease in the United States. Republicans, including our president, blame the media and the fake news for misinformation campaigns. Uh, You have the governors of some states blaming the president and the federal government for lack of supplies and not offering the needed help. Public health officials blame governors for not acting soon enough or not being aggressive enough in their policies. You have some citizens who are angry and blame governors for taking away their freedoms because they put a stay-at-home order. You have other citizens blaming public health officials for miscounting COVID deaths or not allowing the development of the herd immunity or focusing, uh, not focusing enough on protecting the most vulnerable. I mean, it's... Blame, blame, blame everywhere. And by the way, that's just like scratching the surface of this whole thing. And then not only is like they're the outward, very obvious form of blame, there's also a very subtle way of doing this. Like it's not pointing the finger, but what it is is it's showing others how even though there is a problem, I certainly am not one of those people that you can blame. I was recently on a phone call with a friend of mine, and he was, uh, we were just talking about all of this, this whole pandemic business. And he said to me, Do you feel like people wearing masks has become a symbol of moral superiority? Now, he wasn't commenting on wearing masks in general, he was commenting more specifically on the number of people who have posted pictures of themselves in masks on social media, along with a chastisement um, to others for not doing things the way they are. Like you need to wear a mask when you're here or there. You need to wear a mask while jogging, which by the way, 
if you wear a mask while jogging, I'd love to know how that's how that works. Um, it, it looks absolutely miserable. Or it's it's people who talk about um, you know remaining indoors. Like I won't even go outside my patio. I posted a picture that was actually from my front yard um, of the sunset, and it was just this beautiful picture in the way it was coming through the trees right as the buds were coming onto the trees. And so it captured like this glint of green. And, um, I posted that on, I think it was my Instagram story. And I, I was really surprised that several people, like seven or eight people blasted me for being outside. Like you, you need to stay home. And I was like, I am home. I actually, (laughs) I took this picture from my house You see, there's a subtle thing happening with many people that while they may not be pointing the finger, they want to be seen as someone who is actively contributing to the solution of the problem because if they are helping solve the problem, then they can rest more comfortably and cast their vision not within, but now they're almost able to police people who are the problem. See, then we don't have to look at ourselves because there's nothing to look at. And so the longer we hold this attitude towards others, the more we begin to exonerate ourselves. And the longer we go on exonerating ourselves, the more contempt we have toward others. And this, my friends, this is how evil takes root and grows into something bigger. Think about it. What are we capable of if we don't have to look at ourselves? There's a movie that Kevin Bacon uh, starred in called The Hollow Man, and Kevin Bacon's character in the film has a problem, and the problem is is that he's disappearing, like his body is becoming more invisible all the time. And the more invisible he becomes, the more evil he becomes, and he does this without any real consequences, and he does it without really having or showing any signs of conscience um, around the whole thing. And at one point, he's asked a question about it, and he says, it's amazing what you can do when you don't have to look at yourself in the mirror anymore. It's amazing what you can do when you don't have to look yourself in the mirror anymore. It's fascinating that in the sacred text, there is a name given to the evil one, and the name is Shatan, or Satan, as we would call it. And that word, by the way, It's just translated into the word accuser. Now, I mean, if you think about all of the terrifying ways the devil, the evil one, Satan, has been portrayed throughout history, to say he's an accuser, like somebody pointing the finger, you're like, really? This is the, this is like the most terrifying (laughs) name we can come up with? But actually, in some ways, I would say, yeah, it is. And it is because the more that you accuse, the more that you blame, the more that you point the finger, the more you make this everybody else's problem, the more you convince yourself that you are part of the solution and everyone else needs to get their act together, the less you have to look at yourself and the more you are looking at others. And it is amazing what you can do when you no longer have to look at yourself. And again, this is nothing new. This is the story that we are introduced to in Genesis chapter 3. It is the original sin. Now, keep in mind, we are in the midst of a season where we are able to see things with greater clarity. And this attitude that we've been describing of pointing the finger, of blaming, it's one that we have long carried with us. It's just that now it's manifesting in different ways. And even though it's something we've carried with us, and even though this is a season where we're seeing things with greater clarity, this piece, this blame piece, this almost self-righteous, sanctimonious attitude, it's really hard to see. And it's hard to see because the reason that we blame others, the reason that we point the finger, the reason we um, convince ourselves that we are somehow superior The reason we do all of these things is so that we don't have to look at ourselves. The reason we do this is so that we can hide. And so in some ways, one of the reasons this season can be so helpful for us is because it's not allowing us to hide as easily. 
And maybe the fact that we're not able to hide as easily is the very reason that blame has increased. Because we are forced to be with ourselves more than ever. And if there's one thing that I know about human beings, including myself, is that silence and solitude is perhaps more terrifying than almost anything else. We, we're not really sure what to do with ourselves. And now we're in a season where we're forced to be with ourselves more than ever. And if we don't like what we see, consciously or unconsciously, we're going to end up blaming more so that we can take our eyes off ourselves. Yes, it's circular, it, which is why it's such a hard thing to see and to admit and to own, because at some level, if you're not going to blame others, you're going to see yourself. And this is where I think we need to learn then to see ourselves. We can't just say, stop blaming. No, no, no. We need to learn what it means to look within, to look at ourselves. Now, Jesus talked about this, by the way, when he talked about the plank and the speck. He's like, why are you trying to get this little tiny bit of dust out of your brother's eye? All the while, you have a two by four sticking out of the side of your head. Like, he's like, first, <laughs> deal with the massive log that's sticking out of the side of your head, and then, only then, you can help your sibling, you can help your brother, you can help your sister get the speck of dust out of their eye. And so the question becomes, like, well, then, how do we learn to deal with that plank? How do we learn to deal with the two-by-four, the log sticking out of the side of our head? And I think that there are helpful and healthy ways of seeing ourselves. And I say that because often when it comes to looking at parts of ourselves, um, we kind of bypass all sorts of things that have contributed to what we're seeing, and we get right to the conclusion, and the conclusion is often, this should not exist, or I don't like this about myself, or I need to change X, Y, or Z. Now, this is judgment, and judgment invariably ends up negative. And because we have a propensity to cover up what we believe to be negative, we shut it down, we put it away, it, it doesn't really go away, it just festers. And, and what happens is when we do this, um, shame begins to grow. Brene Brown points out that there are three things needed for fear and shame to grow, silence, secrecy, and guilt. Now, how many of us have discovered something that we said, uh, this should not exist. And depending on how you grew up, you might receive some messages that just reinforce, yes, this shouldn't exist or you shouldn't do this. They tell us, these messages tell us directly or indirectly, do not ever let this stuff out into the light of day. So we're quiet about it. We keep our dirty little secrets, although honestly, many of them are not as dirty as we think. And we beat ourselves up over whatever it is we know to be true about ourselves. It's this like unhealthy guilt. And so we just internalize these things. We keep them silent, we keep it secret, and we harbor guilt, and this shame grows. Like, we are incubators for shame. Um, and I don't think this is going to be news to any of you, but this is not healthy. And it's actually a very painful and very destructive way of viewing ourselves. And I know this to be true from my own experience. Like, how many times I see a behavior or I notice a way of thinking, or I hear words that I have spoken or am speaking, and immediately, almost without thinking, I assign a value to them that is bad, or that was wrong, or that is negative, and then I don't stop there. Because my words, or my actions, or my thinking are not just my words, action, or thinking. That's who I am. I am bad. I am wrong. I am negative. And so we need to learn a helpful and a healthy way of seeing ourselves that does not degrade us, but shifts our view of ourselves in the direction of who we truly already are. And that being who we already are, that is beloved children of the God of love. That is who we are. That is what's foundational. Now, if you think about I don't know, like a loving teacher or a loving coach or a loving parent, someone who has the tremendous responsibility of shaping young lives. 
When those people are at their sparkling best, they are not yelling at their students or their players or their children about what they have not done or what they need to do or stop doing. No. When they're at their best, they're directing their students or players or children toward their best self. Like a parent directs their child toward who they know their child to be. And then when the child acts in a way that does not reflect the best or truest parts of who they are, healthy, loving parenting redirects the child toward the best parts of who the child is. Saying things like, when you behave this way, I don't know that that is a reflection of who you really are. So yes, at one level you're saying, uh, this behavior can't exist, but it, it, it's not that it can't exist because you're bad. It's that it can't exist because it's not who you truly are. I remember uh, when I, one of my favorite soccer coaches in all the years that I played soccer, um, it was actually when I was in college, and there was a game that we were playing against a team that we were, uh, I would say, pretty intense against, just, just below a rival. We didn't really like each other, and I was right in front of the bench. By the way, I went to a Christian college. So this makes the story even uh, a little bit amped up, and the president of the university happened to be standing right behind the bench that I was right in front of on the playing field at this particular moment. So I... Uh, one of my teammates passed me the ball, and as soon as that ball touched my leg, I felt the cleats of my opponent um, on the back of my leg, like right on my calf, just a dirty, nasty foul on the back of my leg. And all of you are thinking or wondering, did you roll around like soccer players do, um, you know, like 15 yards in either direction, screaming and yelling like you had just lost your leg? The answer to that is no. I never actually did that. And I didn't need to at this one because the referee immediately blew the whistle. And right as the referee blew the whistle and as right as I felt those cleats on my leg and right as I was falling down to the ground, I screamed out, mother effer, not as a reaction to the pain, but more as a uh, me saying this to the guy who fouled me. And it was, by the way, I didn't say effer either if you didn't catch that. It was just clear and articulate. It, I mean, you could not mistake what I had just said. And especially if you were on our team's bench, which was 15 feet away from me, or if you were right behind our team's bench, which is where the president of our university was, you definitely heard what came out of my mouth. And as soon as I went down to the ground, I heard our coach say, Michael, and he stood up off the bench and like just in three steps was right at the sideline as I'm getting up. And he kind of waved me over with his finger and I took a couple steps toward him and he said in the most gentle way, Michael, we don't need your temper and we don't need your language. What this team needs is your hard work and your talent. Now go play some soccer. There was none of this, how dare you say that? There was none of his trying to save face in front of the president of our university. There was none of this, I'm taking you out of the game because we don't talk like that here at a Christian college. It was, we need something that does not include what just happened. And there was this sense of like, it, it was one of the central moments that helped me on the soccer field in the way I behaved, truthfully, because now all of a sudden it was, oh, you see my hard work, you see my talent. Because this was a way for me to see something in myself rather than focus on the negative side of things. Now, he didn't ignore what was there, but he did offer a, some direction in the midst of it. And if this is how a soccer coach can act, how much more does the heart of the divine invite us to consider who we are? And I point this out because I have learned this is so important for us to hold in, in our heads as we look within. When considering who we are, we need to remember not who we are, but also whose we are. And as we learn this, which is, by the way, a process that does not stop, we can have the confidence to be more honest with ourselves. As we look at our behaviors, we don't need to judge. Instead, we can get curious. Like, why am I acting this way? What's motivating me to post this on social media? Where is this resistance in my heart toward doing what I know to be good and healthy? Where is that coming from? And then we need to listen 
We need to be curious. We need to ask more questions. Too often we jump to, this is wrong, that is bad. Hang on a second. Suspend judgment, if even for a moment, and just observe. Just look. And it's possible when we do this, we may move beyond the actions or the words or the motivations that we often operate and move toward a deeper understanding of ourselves. We may see patterns and wounds and messages and experiences that we've had along the way that are influencing the way we think and speak and act that cause us, um, are, are a part of causing us to act in a particular way. And it's when we discover those things behind the actions that we can actually begin the process of deeper healing. Just a few weeks ago, a friend of mine told me about how he got really upset with his son over some decisions his son has made. And I'm going to spare the details. But I, as I listened to him tell me about what his son has did, what his son had done, I thought, man, I don't blame you for getting upset. I, I would have been furious. And then he spoke about how he acted and acknowledged he said better moments as a dad. And as I listened, I thought, yep, this is not your finest moment. And then he spoke about his process after this uh, confrontation with his son. And he said to me, I eventually had to tell my son uh, to go to my son and tell him what really got me upset, like what was really underneath all of this was how scared I was for him. And what happened then is it led to an incredible discussion, not only in him asking his son's forgiveness, but about fear and about courage. And it really birthed a time for them to share something more together. Now, as a dad, if he had just beaten himself up and said, well, I should never have raised my voice, that's wrong and said to his son, I'm sorry I yelled at you. Like, okay, that's, you know, that's a step. Um, and we could say, sure. But instead, what he did, he went deeper. Why did I get upset? What drove my temper to flare so quickly? It's observing without judgment. So you hate this time in quarantine. Good. Why? Why do you hate it so bad? A few weeks ago, I was on a phone conversation with my friend, and the first thing he said when I answered my phone was, hey, how are you? And I paused for a second and I said, you know what I love about this question right now during quarantine is I don't find myself just saying, I'm good, how are you doing? I actually think people wanna know how I'm doing and, and I wanna know how other people are doing. And he said to me, yeah, I've been answering this question and only responding to how I'm doing on that day because I'm taking this all one day at a time. So one of the things I've begun doing is I do a daily inventory. I spend time each day pondering, journaling, thinking about how am I doing today? I'm sad. Good. Okay. Why am I sad? Uh, I feel agitated. Good. Why do I feel agitated? I'm anxious. Whatever it is, a daily inventory. How am I doing today right now? All with an attempt not to judge, but simply observe, to follow up and ask, are there things I'm doing that are not in line with my true self? Are there things I'm doing that are causing me to grow more fully into my true self? See, rather than it being good or bad, right or wrong, it's now a question of health and what causes growth and what promotes healing and what's unhealthy and what is undoing me. And by the way, like I said, this is a constant process. And I think as we do this, we can then and only then we can then learn more helpful ways of seeing others. Because just like we offer ourselves grace, we can learn to offer that same grace to others, not asking what is wrong with you, but what happened? What happened to you that's causing you to act this way? I remember um, some years back, there was a group of us skiing up at Copper Mountain, and we had just come off a chairlift and skied down just a little bit away from the chairlift. And I heard this guy yelling and dropping all sorts of profanity. And I turned just in time to see, <laughs> to see him like football tackle another skier. And it was so outrageous. At first, I thought it was like two friends messing around. And then I realized as they tumbled toward me that no, in fact, the dude that tackled the other guy was enraged and screaming and yelling at him. And so they tumbled and like slid toward me and stopped just short of where I was, and I pop my skis off, and I go over, and I grab the guy who's done the tackling, and I was like, whoa, 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 hey, man, hey, hey, like, just <laughs> take a big step back, and he's just 
outrage. And by the way, not that it's a big deal because most people are, but he was way bigger than I am. I'm not a very big person. This dude was a big dude. And I start saying, what's wrong? Are you okay? The guy behind me starts like, starts into him. Now that there's someone in between him, he's like, you're crazy. You're nuts. So I finally turn around to the dude who got tackled and said, Hey, Hey, you need to just keep skiing. Get out of here. Stop. Just <laughs> like leave well enough alone. So I begin um, talking to this guy about what happened. And apparently the guy that he had tackled had run into his like six-year-old daughter and the, the guy or the, the, the guy's daughter hit the ground really hard. And initially he thought like, this is it. She's either really badly injured or maybe dead. And this fear of what happened to his daughter caused him, he said to me, he's like, I, I, I almost blacked out with rage. And this guy that ran into his daughter, for whatever reason, kept going and got on the chairlift. And so this guy gets on the chairlift behind him and starts going up the chairlift. And the whole way up is threatening him and screaming at him and telling him he's going to get him because his daughter, who's now back there at the bottom of the hill with his wife, is either significantly injured or dead. And so now he's telling me all of this. And I'm thinking to myself, well, well, this makes sense. And by the way, I have a lot of compassion on people who lose their cool because I have a quick temper. Um, it's something that over the years is, is slowly healing. But when I see this, I often go immediately, you're either scared or you're hurt. And that's exactly what happened. This guy was freaking out about his daughter. And, and so I wonder, like, w- what would happen if we were able to see people and say, I wonder, wonder what happened? I wonder what's causing you to act this way. You see, how do we see those who are responding differently than us in the midst of this pandemic? Do we look at them and say, well, you're wrong, you're stupid, you're bad? Or maybe they're dealing with a whole set of things that we know nothing about. I see people crapping on our political leaders all the time in this season. Doesn't matter what they do. And I think to myself, hang on. We have no idea what they are dealing with every single day. Every decision they make is scrutinized, not just by the general public, but by the media. Nonstop data. They, they have more numbers in their face th- than we can imagine. And with all data comes the interpretation of the data. Then they have a million opinions from everyone in their sphere of influence and everyone that they're working with. Then there's the complexity of this moment. It's not just whether or not we're going to get it or whether or not we have enough ventilators. There's also the complexity of the economy and people who are at risk and how do we keep people safe and what happens to small business owners, what happens to hourly workers, um, what what do we do with schools? I mean, there's so much complexity to this. I cannot imagine what it must be like right now to be a political leader in this country at any level. And I wonder when we see people acting or doing things that we go, huh, not sure I would do that. Can we at least bring ourselves to give, give them the same grace we've given ourselves or at least that we want for ourselves? Maybe just ask them questions and then listen. Maybe ask clarifying questions when they share something. And then, like, genuinely be curious. Ask them more questions. Get to know them. Because I think what people want more than anything is to know that they are seen, to know that they matter, and to know that they are loved. And I can tell you from personal experience, it is amazing what happens when I know that I am seen and that I matter and I'm loved. Not that I'm perfect, just that I'm seen and that I, I matter and I'm loved. There's a great uh, story that Ram Das tells in his book, How Can I Help? And he tells this story of a friend of his on a train in Tokyo. He writes, The train clanked and rattled through the suburbs of Tokyo on a drowsy spring afternoon. Our car was comparatively empty, a few housewives with their kids in tow, some old folks going shopping. I gazed absently at the drab houses and dusty hedgerows. At one station, the doors opened, and suddenly the afternoon quiet was shattered by a man bellowing violent, incomprehensible curses. The man staggered into our car. He wore laborer's clothing, and he was a big drunk who was dirty. 
Screaming, he swung at a woman holding a baby. The blow sent her spinning into the laps of an elderly couple. It was a miracle that the baby was unharmed. Terrified, the couple jumped up and scrambled toward the other end of the car. The laborer aimed a kick at the retreating back of the old woman, but missed as she scuttled to safety. This so enraged the drunk that he grabbed the metal pole in the center of the car and tried to wrench it out of its place. I could see that one of his hands was cut and bleeding. The train lurched ahead, the passengers frozen with fear. I stood up. I was young then, some 20 years ago, and in pretty good shape. I'd been putting in a solid eight hours of Aikido training nearly every day for the past three years. I liked to throw and grapple. I thought I was tough. The trouble was, my martial skill was untested in actual combat. As students of Aikido, we were not allowed to fight. Aikido, my teacher had said again and again, is the art of reconciliation. Whoever has the mind to fight has broken his connection with the universe. If you try to dominate people, you are already defeated. We study how to resolve conflict, not how to start it. I listened to his words. I tried hard. I even went so far as to cross the street to, in, to avoid fights. My forbearance exalted me. I felt both tough and holy. In my heart, however, I wanted an absolutely legitimate opportunity whereby I might save the innocent by destroying the guilty. This is it, I said, I said to myself as I got to my feet. People are in danger. If I don't do something fast, somebody will probably get hurt. Seeing me stand up, the drunk recognized a chance to focus his rage. Aha, he roared, a foreigner. You need a lesson in Japanese manners. I held on lightly to the commuter strap overhead and gave him a slow look of disgust and, disgust and dismissal. I planned to take this turkey apart, but he had to make the first move. I wanted him mad, so I pursed my lips and blew him an insolent kiss. All right, he hollered, you're going to get a lesson. He gathered himself for a rush at me. A fraction of a second before he could move, someone shouted, hey, it was an ear splitting sound. I remember the strangely joyous, lilting quality of it, as though you and a friend had been searching diligently for something, and he had suddenly stumbled upon it. Hey! I wheeled to my left. The drunk spun to his right. We both stared down at a little old Japanese man. He must have been well into his 70s, this tiny gentleman, sitting there immaculate in his kimono. He took no notice of me, but beamed, beamed delightedly at the laborer, as though he had a most important, most welcome secret to share. Come here, the old man said in an easy vernacular, beckoning to the drunk. Come here and talk with me. He waved his hand lightly. The big man followed as if on a string. He planted his feet belligerently in front of the old gentleman and roared above the clacking wheels. Why the hell should I talk to you? The drunk now had his back to me. If his elbow moved so much as a millimeter, I would have dropped him in his socks. The old man continued to beam at the laborer. What you been drinking? He asked, his eyes sparkling with interest. I've been drinking sake, the laborer bellowed back. And it's none of your business. Flecks of spittle spattered the old man. Oh, that's wonderful, the old man said. Absolutely wonderful. You see, I love sake too. Every night, me and my wife, she's 76, you know, we warm up a little bottle of sake and take it out to the garden and we sit on an old wooden bench. We watch the sun go down and we look to see how our persimmon tree is doing. My great-grandfather planted that tree and we worry about whether it will recover from those ice storms we had last winter. Our tree has done better than I expected, though, especially when you consider the poor quality of the soil. It is gratifying to watch when we take our sake and go out to enjoy the evening, even when it rains. He looked up at the laborer all the while his eyes were twinkling. As he struggled to follow the old man's conversation, the drunk's face began to soften. His fists slowly unclenched. Yeah, he said. I love persimmons too, and his voice trailed off. Yes, said the old man, smiling, and I'm sure you have a wonderful wife. No, the laborer replied. My wife died. Very gently, swaying with the motion of the train, the big man began to sob. I don't got no wife. I don't got no home. I don't got no job. I'm so ashamed of myself. Tears rolled down his cheeks. A spasm of despair rippled through his body. Now it was my turn. Standing there in my well-scrubbed youthful innocence, my make-this-world-safe-for-democracy-righteousness, I suddenly felt dirtier than he was. 
Then the train arrived at my stop. As the doors opened, I heard the old man cluck sympathetically. My, my, he said. That is a difficult predicament. Sit down here and tell me about it. I turned my head for one last look. The laborer was sprawled on the seat, his head in the old man's lap. The old man was softly stroking the filthy, matted hair. As the train pulled away, I sat down on a bench. What I had wanted to do with muscle had been accomplished with kind words. I had just seen Aikido tried in combat, and the essence of it was love. Oh, that is, that's exactly it. What if we saw everyone everywhere, not as a threat, not as wrong or bad, but people who, just like you and me, just want to be seen and know that they matter and be loved? What if we saw them as siblings, people trying to figure it out just like us? Like, what if we saw the person who's responding to this pandemic in ways that we might consider reprehensible? What if we recognize they are in the midst of circumstances and situations every bit as much as we are? And just like us, they are doing the best they can. You see, it's doing all we can to live outside of judgment. Again, this is, this is exactly what Jesus was talking about with the, the planks and the specks. If we can sort out our own stuff, we then become those who are transformed enough to help others. But when we start with the other, that's when Jesus says, no, now you're a hypocrite. You think you're good to go? No. And, and by the way, all of us have this churning within us. Like I said at the beginning, this is the human experience. The only difference is what it looks like when it comes out into the world. Because in the end, perhaps rather than trying to find people to blame, maybe what we need to learn is first how to look at ourselves with grace and compassion. And maybe if we can do that, we'll move from trying to find people to blame and learn that it's far more powerful and healing to find people to love. And maybe... Maybe if we learn to do this well, we will have to worry less about fixing all of the things that make us uncomfortable, and we might become those who assist in the repair of our world, so that together we might be able to live and move and have our being with greater peace and greater contentment and greater wholeness. And so may you, my friends, may you, my brothers and sisters, May you do the hard work of taking the plank out of your own eye. And may you do this with all of the grace and mercy and forgiveness that has already been given you so that you might be able to turn and offer that same grace and mercy and forgiveness to those who have that little tiny speck of dust in their eye so that together we might all move beyond blame and toward peace with in between one another. And that is it for today. So thank you once again for joining with us on the Changing Faith Podcast. Until next time, as always, much love and peace be with you.